0: This is HR in Review, a podcast dedicated to HR thought leadership, actionable advice and all the latest developments in human resource management.
1: Hello and welcome to HR in Review. Today we're talking about three very important subjects within HR. Firstly, we'll be looking at why you don't need to carry out blanket bans or blanket assessments to solve your issues with IR35.
2: Do status determinations based around what the case law says, um, not what HMRC's guidance says, because you can't rely on the guidance in a tax tribunal, should it come to that.
1: We'll also be talking about how to make employees feel valued in your
3: workplace. Culturally, we find that whether it's between peers, even ultimately between managers and their people, that dialogue is much more open in the workplace than it ever has been before.
1: But before that, let's hear from Sandra Porter, author of the book, How to Be an HR Superstar. Sandra now runs a consultancy the HR department. She started her career working for Daniel Craig's parents. That's right, James Bond. And then she moved on to work in HR for Starbucks and for O2. And what she realized was there just wasn't a practical HR book for professionals to help them implement the processes that they needed to. So she wrote it. We started by talking about whether companies would move back to focusing on how much an employee works rather than how much work they produce. If we ever move back to a physical office.
4: I don't think we'll go back to the old ways, but I think there'll be a compromise. So I think where people or business leaders had previously maybe been reluctant to adopt a more remote way of working um, and a more flexible approach to hours versus output. The force of for everybody to, to work from home where that was possible I think has tested that and therefore now companies obviously have brought in that infrastructure, have kind of tested how that operates and have become more comfortable with that. So that is great because it allows more flexibility. I think we're also starting to see the cracks. You know there's a lot of research now that has demonstrated that that whilst remote working has brought many positives both personally and to organisations that there are there are downsides and that and it does in in many ways limit communication collaboration innovation problem solving a sense of belonging you know there's and and I think from an organizational level they're noticing they're starting to notice that now and having to maybe bring it back bring back some of those traditional methods of actually meeting each other. And also just personally, I think different different behavioural styles need different levels of interaction. And those with a high need for interaction are probably you know feeling quite lonely at times and therefore there will be a compromise. Well, well, actually that brings me on very
1: nicely to your piece for HR Review, um, where you talk mm. about younger HR professionals feeling the strain of working within COVID and, and managing these
0: pressures. I mean, what, what actually are the pressures they face now Uh, younger workers compared to before. Follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook.
4: Goodness, it has been a fascinating 18 to 24 months um, and it has been exhausting, I think, for many. Where normally HR professionals, I think, um, they... You know, they, they develop their expertise. There's an employment kind of law framework and, and policies and procedures within which they work. You know, they're, they're solving problems on a day-to-day basis involving kind of employee issues, or whatever, but they, they are basing their decisions usually on precedents or on policies and procedures. And that gives them that structure and that reassurance and familiarity within which they work. Um, when, when we face something like a pandemic, a lot of that goes out, you know, just goes out of the window. We don't have that familiarity um, because suddenly Rishi Sunak would announce um you know furlough or the need to quarantine or the need to self-isolate. And 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 the businesses obviously looked to the HR professionals to translate that. And often um, that would have felt very um overwhelming for many because it wasn't that they didn't know the answers, it was really that the answers at some points didn't exist at all. And therefore, you know, it, that that kind of safety net for HR professionals of feeling that they know what they're talking about and can operate their own expertise um, was taken away. And we were all having to <laughs> react in the moment, learn as quickly as we could um, and deal with some very heightened emotions at a time when everyone was dealing with such a amount of stress. Mm.
1: And you also talk in your piece about HR professionals needing to put their own oxygen mask on 1st mm-hmm. Um Tell us more about what you mean.
4: Yeah, I use that analogy because I, I I really think it's really pertinent right now. You know, when you get on a flight and they talk about how you can then um, support others in a crisis, they make a big point, really, when you're on a flight about the need to put on your own oxygen mask first. You're only good to be able to help other people if you are looking after yourself. Now, we were thrown into this, to the need to react to the pandemic um, and all of the Um, new kind of restrictions, regulations and things um, without any notice. Okay, so so obviously we've had to to react. But it has meant that many HR people are are often facing their own anxieties about a vaccine or no vaccine, about the need to self-isolate, about a safe workplace. They're dealing with it themselves. They're dealing with it for their own families and friends, Mm. and then also facing a lot of pressure in the workplace from business leaders and employees all also reacting on a personal level and a business level organizational level to those changes um i think the hr pressure has done an outstanding job of being able to rise to that challenge and give the support that's needed but it has come at a cost and and unfortunately whilst i think initially we felt that um that that would probably calm down and, and those um extreme work levels would would dissipate it did to a degree but there's still a heightened level of change. And that means that HR people are continuing on, on many fronts, I think, to have to work longer hours in a more heightened kind of emotional state. Um, and that is, is not good over the longer term. There's a shelf life to that. So, you know, in, in, in the article, um, you know, I'm referring to the oxygen mask as the need for HR leaders and business leaders to be able to pause, <laughs> I think we need to create a pause to reflect on what has happened and to recognize the contribution of the HR team, you know, that have pulled out the stops and worked some very late nights, you know, and, and had to deal with those questions and often a lot of stress and um. You know, I mean, I had managing directors for our clients phoning me in tears and, and shouting because they, they were so scared of their future um, and all the HR, I'm sure a lot of HR professionals have experienced the same. Um, what can businesses now do to say, HR did a cracking job, um, but what did we learn and how are the HR professionals feeling now? You know, there's a need to stop and reflect and think about what the learnings have been and then think about what the future holds because... A reliance on best practice and things doesn't count anymore because, um, because change is coming so quickly. We need to be very creative within our professional kind of um, boundaries to, to enable business as quickly as possible.
1: I was speaking to someone earlier who talked about um, increasing the need for empathy in a workplace, saying that the more empathy that we have for our colleagues, whether they're HR professionals or, you know, the CEO or whether they're admin workers or the secretaries or anyone in the workspace, Mm -hmm. it actually creates a, a better atmosphere. And this then, indirectly also helps a business succeed because, you know, less people leave, you know, you retain more staff mm-hmm. and it just ends up being a much more um, wholesome place. What are mm-hmm. your thoughts on that?
4: Completely. Um, I completely agree. The, the need for empathy and compassion in an organisation is absolutely crucial. Um, the, HR plays such a, such a specific role. You know, we are often the conduit between the employer's expectations and the employee experience and and sometimes that translation between the two is really important to make sure that that the business can operate effectively where hr need to play a role in kind of in hearing individuals and as you say at whatever level that might be being that sounding board and being able to understand the the person's perspective and help them feel heard is crucial and that is to enable performance Um, you know, to to drive the business forward, but it's also to mitigate risk. You know, when you look at cases that go to tribunal, um, there have often been significant opportunities in the history of that case where the employee just didn't feel heard. And and therefore the the role of HR to be able to help people feel heard, whether that is through a process or just paying attention, (laughs) giving people the time, Um, and understanding it from their shoes is really important from risk mitigation but also to help employees and with with obviously the the increase in mental health issues in the workplace that compassion and empathy is not a soft and fluffy um skill to have it is crucial and it shouldn't be taken for granted that HR people just automatically have that just because you put HR Um, title on your business card it doesn't mean that you necessarily have it automatically and therefore I think HR leaders need to take time to ensure that junior HR colleagues throughout that team are able to um, demonstrate the the compassion for for other people and that means active listening it means listening really generously it's about understanding people's body language to, to hear what is actually being said Rather than the words that are being said so it's um yeah now more than ever and it's not going to go away is, is so we um, need to get up to speed <laughs>
1: is that something that can be taught though empathy compassion you know i know listening can be taught but can people really be taught to feel
4: yeah i think i think for, for many it comes more easier than others so it's not um it's not it should not be taken for granted. I think there is there is a need for um, conversation within the HR functions about the need for compassion and about sometimes slowing down and not focusing so much on the process, but actually understanding the individual's perspective. And sometimes just that conversation in itself can help people's awareness of how much are they doing that or not. Tweet at HR review just finally sandra you say
1: um that quite a few hr professionals feel as if they're under equipped to deal with the job at hand but judging from what you've seen are they under equipped or is that is that just a feeling
4: uh across the board because you know we're doing things much differently than before i would, I would definitely say that many are feeling under equipped um, and that's you know to my earlier point that is because their sense of familiarity was was taken away for for quite a significant period of time, you know, forcing, you know, many in many industries anyway, forcing people to be able to go and work from home has completely changed the dynamic into dealing with all of the sickness issues and, and these new rules and regulations, this new COVID language that we've had to learn um, has been a big ask, but but for many in for many HR people, particularly if they're in a standalone role, have no doubt found this time extremely lonely. Um, and th- there are some really important things I think that HR teams can now do to help those HR colleagues just feel more confident again about know- knowing what they're supposed to know. And that can be about just updating, you know stopping the team, having creating a pause and reflecting on what's happened. Um, really looking at how the business has changed and maybe how the HR profession therefore needs to change to support the business, but also helping them feel part of a community. What resources have we got? You know, who, who else can we connect with to see what other businesses are doing to be able to adapt in this new environment, so again, more of a sense of how is everyone else doing? What else can we do? Um, and how are we performing? Um, to, to best support our business, so there's lots of resources and the support that's needed. I think to make sure that people are feeling more confident again, and they're really working hard on those development plans to accelerate that HR skill set to be able to keep its position at this. You know, we've we've earned a, a position at the table because of COVID-19, but 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 we need to continue to. Design it and earn our stripes so those development plans around commerciality you know this kind of creative professionalism that's needed as you say empathy and compassion but also courage you know being able to, to put your hand up and say I don't think that's right or, I'm not sure that's going to work and this is why is really important for the HR function as that impartial kind of go between um, and then that self-discipline really to, to, to do what we say we're going to do so that we can demonstrate our value. Sound reporter there author and HR
1: superstar. Be sure to look out for Sandra's opinion piece on the HR Review site. It's a two-minute
0: read where she talks about HR teams needing to look after themselves. If you have any comments on the HR and Review podcast, would like to suggest a topic or speaker, or provide other feedback, you can contact us using the email podcast at hrreview.co.uk. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: Now, my next guest is Dave Chaplin. Dave has been working to understand and help HR teams get to grips with the ever-changing rules on IR35. Since 1999, he runs IR35 Shield, which assesses compliance on the subject. Dave says the rules on IR35 have been damaging to contractor pay and to the freelancing sector as a whole. He helps companies and even HMRC navigate the system. We started by talking about how Dave got the nickname Mr IR35.
2: The original legislation never really worked. It was never designed to be enforced by HMRC. It was designed to bring around a behavioural effect. And and contractors were supposed to be assessing themselves to see whether or not um, they were disguised employees and paying tax accordingly. But what happened was... When everyone asked the question to themselves, am I a disguised employee and then, should I pay an extra 20% tax, they all answered no. So what then happened was for the, the legislation was just tried to be enforced for many years. HMRC gave up. And then finally, they decided to go with the original plan they had um, back in February 1999, which was to ask the hiring firms to assess the relationship Um, as to see whether it was one of disguised employment and then deduct the tax at source. And this came in in the public sector in 2017, and then it's been rolled out to the private sector in 2021. But it's caused considerable friction because whilst it sounds simple on the surface that someone else is doing the assessment, the manner in which the implementation is done and the legislation is laid out, which isn't the same as the original legislation, means that it's created a disproportionate risk for hiring firms if they get it wrong to such an extent that many firms have decided it's, it's safer for them to simply ban the use of hiring any contractors.
1: So we're literally going back in time now, what, what HMRC has done is it's gone back in time to old practices. Is, is that what you're saying?
2: Well, they, they originally did want to have the legislation whereby the hiring firm would, would decide the status. But that was kind of lobbied out. And, and for good reason, too, because... In order to decide your, your tax status, um, one of the tests is whether or not you're in business on your own account. And that requires looking at really how you've operated for many, many years before. And it's, it's impossible for a hiring firm to know what you've done all those years before. And it's, it's one of the massive flaws that we, we currently have with the legislation.
1: So what would you say hiring firms should do? What is your advice to them to ensure that they manage this effectively?
2: Ironically, whilst there is lots of fear in the market, and they have, uh, and many firms have taken a knee-jerk response and banned limited company contractors, it's, it's fairly ironic because if they do things right, then there's really nowhere and no way for HMRC to, to push more tax onto them and tell them they've done it wrong because of the nature in which you go about defending one of these types of um, status investigations. But to get it right... The best practices that we've seen develop are to have consistency when you do your status determinations, do status determinations based around what the case law says, um, not what HMRC's guidance says, because you can't rely on the guidance in a tax tribunal, should it come to that, and also to, to gather some evidence during the contract so that should it come to it, you can prove that the actual status was what you said it was. Seek advice and guidance from people that know this in depth if you don't have in-house expertise um, and really really just um, take, take care in how you're going about implementing your processes to get it right. And if, and if you are hiring people that are disguised employees or the relationship should be one of employment, then hire them that way. Don't try and game the system in any way.
1: Okay, so so your advice is that hiring teams and, and HR teams should, from the outset, decide that they're going to tribunal or in hiring a contractor and have all the evidence ready before that even happens.
2: They should certainly prepare for that. I mean, it's, it's a very belt and braces approach, but um, it can be done and the service we offer automates that for them. One of the bizarre nuances with the old legislation and the new legislation is that with the original legislation, you had to determine the tax status after all the advances take had taken place. When all of the evidence is there, you know what happened during the, the contract. So it's much easier to, uh, to assess a situation that it's actually when it's actually happened. Whereas with the new legislation, we, we are supposed to be assessing the status upfront before it's even started, which does sound rather nonsensical. Now, that will be OK, provided everyone does and says, uh, everyone, everyone does what they um, agreed up front and the contract does behave in a manner in which they expected it to. Um, because you don't want to have, I guess, contract paperwork that says you agreed to do A, but in the end you did, did B and maybe C and D and E and whatever the client asks you to do. So it, it's useful to gather evidence along the way so that by the time the contract has finished, You have some evidence that's corroborated by the parties that demonstrates that materially what you said you were going to do, that's actually what happened. You're listening to HR in Review.
1: Okay, so moving on from the processes of of the system, um, what's actually happening as well is that there are real people being affected by these IR35 rules, aren't there? Because contractors are uh, well severely being impacted in their salaries
2: their incomes um, for many of them have gone down that's certainly at the um, lower paid end of the market um, it, we're seeing different things depending upon where you sit on the supply and demand curve um, if you're at the lower end of the market and firms have the have the upper hand um and essentially a, you know have a much stronger bargaining position then it's a case of take it or leave it there is supposed to be a dispute process whereby you can say to the client, "I disagree with your assessment." But we're seeing that some, many, well, many contractors aren't even being given an assessment to which they can dispute. And even if they are being given one, um, then if they try to dispute it, they're just given the same answer because the clients essentially mark their own homework. There's, there's no. There's no access to natural justice or a tax tribunal. Some another firm is deciding your tax status, um, which is kind of not fair, really. Um, so that's what we're seeing at the low end of the market. And we're also seeing that the extra tax that should be paid, which is the employers and I second class one. NICs, that's what this whole topic is about. That's the tax that's really been perceived to be missing. Um, we're seeing clients to just basically reduce rates so um, the contractor ends up paying that amount of tax as well. Typically, they might say you must use an umbrella company and if they use an umbrella company then the contractor is effectively paying two lots of national insurance and the income tax and their tax rates are higher than an employee um, like for like. So we're seeing that at the low end of of the pay scale. At the higher end of the pay scale Hirers who are doing blanket bans are finding everything's becoming very expensive or they can't get hold of people. Um, typically, a contractor, let's say they were on a, a rate of 500 pounds a day. Um, if they're told you must use an umbrella company or you must be inside IR 35, they're pushing that rate up by 40% to 700 a day. So, this is really pushing up the costs of projects. Some firms have fixed rates that they they can pay, so they just cannot access the people that they want.
1: So, I guess we're not going to see uh, a change of blanket bans and blanket, ass- blanket assessments anytime soon.
2: We we are starting to see it where firms are unable to get hold of the resources they need to do the projects. Um, the default position for most firms will be to go for the path of least resistance and least risk. And if they can't get hold of people they're starting to change their minds and hire people um, outside IR35 and engage with the legislation properly. It really does depend on supply and demand.
1: Tell me about your company and what it does exactly and how um, how you work with HMRC to help people who, who have contracts and uh, who feel that they have been mis- mis-assessed.
2: If people have been um, mis-assessed, we don't really help contractors with disputes because the answer is always the same. But um, with IR35 Shield, um, we built this company and it was a spin out of a, a tool that I'd actually built 12 years ago as part of at my um, website contractor calculator. So we spun this out as a, as a new tool. We upgraded it and it enables companies to do assessments at scale consistently and quickly so that they can engage with the legislation and hire contractors safely. It also it offers um, assessments to contractors as well, because if they're still under the old legislation, because um, they're, perhaps they're working for a small company, um, then they need to do their own assessment. So it's about providing fairness, really. Um, we envisaged when the legislation was first announced that, whilst HMRC said that they were going to build a tool. We'd seen the history of them building those types of tools and we knew that they wouldn't be very good at it. And that has kind of been proven correct. So there's now quite a market in lots of firms using other tools that align with the law rather than using HMRC's tool. We do speak to the, um, we speak to HMRC, the off payroll team and help give them advice with some of their guidance. Um, On the other side of things, when we're defending, I guess, in a way, we are liaising with the litigation team when we're defending contractors.
1: That's interesting how you say um, when you help HMRC with guidance and also uh, HMRC guidance doesn't actually fit in with the law.
2: There's so much of the guidance. Some of it's really, really good. Um, And other bits, you read it and and it's, um, no, there's definitely scope for improvement. Uh, The challenge they have is that, this is an exceptionally complex topic, and they're having to try and explain it in a very simple way, which is almost uh, an impossible job for them. Um, I guess that's why firms need to try and seek, need to seek advice, advice from specialists. I think uh, if you try to just read the guidance on the HMRC website itself, um, you would run into trouble. I know that HMRC take three to five years to train their own inspectors in matters of status. So um, that's not something anybody's going to learn overnight themselves.
1: Dave Chaplin from ir 35 Shield speaking to me earlier.
0: Why not subscribe to the premium version of HR in Review? You'll get ad-free content, early and extra episodes and more. Even better, although it's the premium edition, it's absolutely free. Sign up at hrreview.co.uk slash podcast. Now, let's hear from Matthew Gregson.
1: At the moment, he is head of corporate at Howden Employee Benefits and Wellbeing, but for years, he's been a champion for employee well-being. He helps businesses introduce well-being and global initiatives, some award-winning. Now, since the pandemic, Matthew says, working from home means paying more attention than ever to employee health. We started our conversation by talking about peer support in the workplace, which Matthew is a supporter of. He also talked to me about how companies are now focusing more than ever on on how the employees feel.
3: I don't think that anyone would deny there are people who are designing and changing the culture and reward programs they have to be more diverse, more inclusive, more sustainable, more purpose-driven, with an intent to still stay ahead of the competition. So it's just a different way of driving the same outcome. But I do also believe there's a lot of uh, companies out there who would forsake that extra degree of profit an extra percentage of profit to invest in doing the right things both at a co- corporate social responsibility level and for the benefit of their people so it's interesting for example you go to the technology sector which I think has been one of the best sectors at embracing employee well-being and some and indeed uh, driving a diverse and inclusion agenda um, what makes you say that i think more than anything the level of investment that they put behind these initiatives so without naming names but if you look at the big tech giants the the big brand names we all know of my understanding is that we see them deliver kind of far more in terms of richer benefits and well-being programs than other sectors and other employers do but um, those sectors so-
1: also, I, I work a lot in the technology sector and those sectors also insist that employees work 20 hour days. Sometimes if there's a project, they will not let up. There's not always um, an open forum for women who are being antagonised or, or people of LGBTQ um, minorities. There just isn't an open forum for that. So Yes, I think there is a place uh, where technology companies do offer perks and benefits. And, you know, it's well known that even you walk into the office and there's ping pong tables everywhere. And then, you know, there's health benefits as well. But there are also added issues that aren't well publicized either.
3: No, I I, I agree with you on that. And uh, sorry, my point was more about, you know, are we are we seeing them? invest in all these programs and initiatives simply to try and set a new agenda and to to do something almost altruistic? Or do we believe that companies in those sectors are still, as I say, just very minded to design the employee experience around the talent they want that they believe is driving their business forward? So I'm personally not sure, to to the original question you've asked, whether we're seeing companies do this still with that growth and profit mindset or whether or not they too are kind of softening that corporate perspective and thinking actually they would happily spend more of what would otherwise be profits ensuring that they're doing more of the right thing by their employees and by wider society
1: Mm. um okay so let's change tack a little bit what advice do you have for hr teams who want to ensure that they have healthy employees who are also happy to come into work and continually are uh, engaged with regards to parks and benefits?
3: Yeah, because I was going to say, I mean, it's a great question in its broadest context, right? Because they, they need to, firstly, even before we get to reward, believe in the business, right? So believe that it, it, it's doing a good thing and the right thing, um, both from a commercial perspective and a maybe more societal or ethical perspective then they need to know that they've got the right role, that they've got the right tools, and that they can see their contribution to where that business is going. So there's a lot of things that come before the question of reward. But when they do, I think nowadays, they have to, they have to very much think about it in two or three terms. One, um, there's no doubt it has to remain competitive, right? So when people are thinking about benefits and well-being, they need to ensure that they're still investing the amount of money that their employees are expecting. I don't think they can dress up uh, a few nice things. As, as you, you rightly say, like ping pong tables and uh, and free, ice, free beer or ice cream on a Friday and not properly invest in pensions and healthcare and those other larger expensive expectations.
4: Find us on LinkedIn, HR Review
1: one of the things we haven't talked about actually is um the biggest contributor to better mental health in the workplace is um a person's manager and you know there are certain people in the world who don't need managing and who are able to continue with their work and you know and actually being managed in a traditional way tends to hurt their performance and then there are the people who might want you know constant check-ins maybe three four five times a day and um who need assistance or um just to make sure that what they're doing is the right thing and I was reading a book and I can't remember it's I have brain fog because of COVID but anyway it's um somebody something gallop and he talks about how if you have someone who is your manager and you don't i don't know you aren't happy with the way you're being managed that is most likely the the biggest reason that you would leave even if you have all of the other benefits including a large sal- salary because obviously managers aren't doing this on purpose but what can they do to make sure that they are <coughs> catering to each employee's different needs because obviously every employee is going to be different and need different things
3: yeah they most certainly are i um i don't profess to have any of my own wisdom here, but I'll steal some from somebody else, um, which is the uh, the investor Ray Dalio, and he often posts on social media kind of his his principles for various things, including a great one I read recently on his principles for management. And he said, "Create a genuine emotional bond with a person. If you don't genuinely care about people, don't pretend or want to be a manager." So I think that that's probably the most important thing is whether or not we're assessing. The competency of our would-be managers, on the basis of their human skill sets, as opposed to being the best performer in the role. And then, once that is the case, if, if we can successfully select out those who have a genuine caring for people, is then giving them the training and skill set to know how to tackle different people differently. No one ever say that with their friendships, they they have a you know, a playbook for exactly how they manage every friendship exactly the same way. They should be exactly the same thing. You know, um, I'm not a particular fan of of the term kind of um, like a, a social comedian, but it's that idea that if you want to perform the best for another person, you have to mirror them, you have to understand them, you have to see things from their perspective.
1: That was Matthew Gregson from Howden Employee Benefits and Wellbeing that my friends is all we have time for today I hope you've enjoyed listening to my guests as much
0: as I loved talking to them but most of all I hope you learned something today the HR and Review podcast is brought to you by hrreview.co.uk. hrreview.co.uk is a website dedicated to human resources and related professionals. News items are posted daily together with analysis looking in-depth at topical HR issues. You can sign up for our range of specialist newsletters at hrreview.co.uk slash sign up and follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you for listening.